Jesus, we want your presence. Uh, you, the living word, that has become flesh. We know this is your will. This is your desire to be with us. And while you, Jesus, are not here in the flesh with us, you've still promised that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so we, we recognize your presence. We thank you for your presence. We ask that in the written word of scripture, we would experience and and in this uh, mysterious way ingest your presence. Um, and I ask that, that through the teaching of your word that your church would be um, both fed and challenged, and that your spirit would speak clearly to each one, whether or not it's something that I say out loud. Uh, we, we're, we're here to receive from you, um, whether those things be comfort or, or correction. Uh, whatever you have for your church, we want to be willing to receive what you have for us. So bless us. Uh, we, we ask that you would um, bless how we receive your already blessed word. And that uh, we as your church um, would, would be able to grow now more into the image of Christ our head. Uh, we love you. We ask that through the course of this morning, uh, and we would love you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Last week, uh, the, the final Sunday of, of Advent, I asked you a question. It was a real obvious Sunday school kind of question. If God were to prove his love for you, what would you expect him to do? Uh, and the answer, of course, is that he would give you his son. Christ is the gift. Christ is enough for me. Christ is the sum of all spiritual things, as Watchman Nee would say. He is the demonstration of God's love for us. But uh, that, that's as true on the day after Christmas as on any other day. Of course, that is how God demonstrates his love for us. That is how he intends to show his love for you is through his son. Now, if you have another true love, I would like you to remind you that if they were to show their love for you, today would be the day they would be getting you two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. I told you I was preaching on that. I wasn't kidding. Uh, this is the second day of Christmas. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. They begin on the 25th and then work their way towards Epiphany, uh, when the church historically is... Uh, commemorated the wise men and the baptism of Jesus and uh, the transfiguration. Uh, as a people in our church context that don't really follow any ancient or traditional church calendar other than Christmas and Easter, those aren't rhythms that we're used to. Fortunately, 12 days of Christmas sounds kind of exhausting. We've kind of, we, we don't really follow that calendar so much. What we are used to as far as rhythms in the calendar is, is that weird feeling of the week after Christmas, we all recognize that, and that mix of hope and relief or dread or something that comes with the ending of one year and the beginning of a new one. We're used to the feelings of endings and beginnings and that kind of um, suspended discomfort that happens when the one meets the other. Now, for the last nine years, we as a church have marked the end of the year and the beginning of the year with a week of prayer meetings, which start tomorrow. You can consider this sermon as just one really long announcement for the prayer meetings that are starting tomorrow. It's an announcement. That's what this is. Um, so I would, I would like to invite all of you and your friends to as many prayer nights as you can attend. It will be at 6.30 uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then on the 31st, we'll start at 8 and go through midnight, uh, read through the Gospel of Mark together, and pray and worship and, and pray into the New Year. So to prepare us for this kind of prayer today, we're going to look at 
uh, passage, um, several passages actually, but we'll start in Luke. You can turn to Luke 18. Um, supplemented by many other passages, one of which I'll start uh, start off by reading to you from 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. I thought that was an appropriate one for the last Sunday of the year. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That word watchful is going to be somewhat key in the other passages that we read. Uh, now, Luke chapter 18. I'll read from verse 1. Uh, on through verse 8. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard me. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, I see a couple things here that I, I really want you to take home. Two things I want you to remember. And it feels like you've already, uh, that, that you already remember these points. It's because I, I taught this sermon before most of it. This is a rerun. Uh, if you don't remember the two things, then you're the reasons why I need to teach it again. And this is a rerun. Uh, but Christ, uh, Christ uh, has this somewhat haunting question in verse 8 that shows us prayer is neglected. He says, well... Will he really find faith on the earth? That's the first thing. Prayer is neglected. And then he says, back in verse 1 of Luke 18, he says, men always ought to pray. And here we see that prayer is needed. It, it's demanded. Even. Prayer is neglected, and prayer is needed. We're coming up on the new year, and I say every year that I love new things. I love the fresh start. I'm one of those strange people that likes Mondays, beginning of the week. Feels good to me. Um, I like the clean slate. I like putting together plans for what's what's coming and what I'm going to do. I love all of that partly because planning all the good things that are coming and putting that down on paper is a whole lot less work than actually doing any of the things on anyone's list. And and making, I mean, if you make like New Year's resolutions or something, it almost feels like an accomplishment in itself, right? Like, guess what I decided I'm going to do? You're, you're so satisfied with yourself for making that good decision. You... you it feels almost as good as actually accomplishing a task with little to no effort. And then you look at all the things that you're going to do next year, and you get jealous of your future self, who's just so awesome, right? And good at everything and speaks three languages. You know, because future self is wise and healthy and fit and makes good decisions, unlike the guy last year that you had to live with every, you know, every day. Uh, but you, you just, the future self is so awesome. So if you're like me, you enjoy the unchecked optimism that a new year or even a new month might bring, limitless possibilities. And I think there are God-given spiritual reasons that we feel an excitement with a new chapter or anything new, a new page on the calendar, or a new calendar entirely. And I, I think it's because in our hearts there is this desire for the day when we will hear the one on the throne say, behold, I made all things new. Like, we're leaning forward to that. And we say yes and amen to that. I mean, he's going to make all things new. So we like new things, 
um, because of Revelation 21.5, when we're looking forward, we're leaning forward to the day when the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. That's what we want. There is a Christian virtue of hope, which is a kind of looking forward towards newness, and looking toward the future to hope, to plan, even to dream. I believe these can be godly things to meditate on. However, uh, onward is not the only direction for our meditation. While we as Christians are to be watchful, looking towards the future, we're also to be watchful by looking at ourselves and seeing if our lamps are trimmed, so to speak. And we'll go to that, the, the parable of the ten virgins, to look at that a little bit later. As we come to the close of one year and prepare to step into the next, we need to carefully direct our gaze in both of these directions. We look forward and we look inward, longing for the day when all things will become new. So I want to consider looking forward first. This, of course, will be a familiar theme for all of you who have been here at any point this month. Advent is about hope. It's about waiting. And we've talked about Zacharias and Joseph and Elizabeth and Mary. These are people who waited faithfully for the coming of a Savior. And we follow in their footsteps and cultivate expectation for the same exact, exact thing that they were hoping for, for the coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They look forward to the first coming, we look forward to the second coming. This is a for, the forward gaze of the Christian. Uh, this is actually the context of the passage that we just read from Luke. If you glance back at Luke chapter 17, you would see that the second half of the chapter is all about the coming of the king. And, and back in verse 20, Jesus was asked by some Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And his initial response to those guys was that you can't see it, and it's already here. It says, The kingdom of God does not come with you with observation, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. His point being that the, the kingdom of God exists wherever there are people submitting to God as king, wherever people live and pray the words, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His reign becomes established there. So that's what he tells the Pharisees. He says, it's not what you think, you can't see it, it's already here, but you're not in, so just, just walk away. And he tells all of us, if you want to know the kingdom of God, look around you, look at me, look at Christ, right? Look at my disciples, look what they're doing, look at my body, the church. But then in verse 22, he speaks to the disciples, who he always speaks to a little differently than how he talks to the Pharisees, right? He told the Pharisees, you can't see my kingdom by looking for signs. And then he tells the disciples, oh, you're going to see the signs. You're definitely going to see the signs, all right? It'll be like lightning shooting across the sky. Everyone will see it. It'll be like in the days of Noah. It will be like Sodom before its destruction. He says that the days before Christ's coming will be like the days before those two catastrophes. And the easy, maybe knee-jerk way to interpret this, the way we want to interpret this, is that things will be really, really bad before they get better, right? Things were bad before the flood, and before fire and brimstone came down on Sodom, things were bad. That's true. Um... The days of Noah are described as corrupt and filled with violence in Genesis 6-9. It says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Jesus in Matthew 24, uh, 12, speaking of the end, he says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So yeah. Yeah, they, oh, can we unblue that? I don't like that. Let's change it. Um, the, the days ahead are evil days. In, uh, in Luke, when Jesus says that the days prior to his return will be compared to the earth in Noah's day or Sodom and Lot's day, he makes no mention of their sins. 
So Luke is a little different here. He doesn't, he doesn't mention their sins. In chapter 17, if you go back to Luke 17, 26, I know I'm all over the place today, but it's, it's a lot of Bible. It's a lot of Bible. It says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. They ate, they drank, they were weddings. They built houses. They did their chores. They went shopping. Uh, this is normal stuff, right? It's the everyday kind of stuff. It's business as usual. The only hint of sin in this description is in, the, in this passage is a lack of watchfulness. But then this great separation comes, right? One is taken and one is left, and you can read all about that in the, the passage, the idea being that one goes to judgment and one goes to final redemption. And Jesus warns his own disciples, remember Lot's wife. I, I guess she was at the Alamo. I think that's the same kind of phrase that this is used. Lot's wife, you will recall, was being delivered out of Sodom, being led by angels to safety, and looked back at the life she was leaving behind, and has turned to a pillar of salt. This indicates that there will be those who, instead of watching for the coming of Christ, will have their eyes fixed on the world that they are being brought out of, and will suffer for where they place their focus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 61, he says, No one having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. But go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9, actually. We'll go back to chapter 18, probably. But Luke 9 is good. We're going to read a, a big section of this. The, the importance that Jesus puts on watching for his return cannot be overstated. This comes up over and over and over again in the Gospels. Um, directly following this well-known and oft-quoted verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right after that, Jesus in chapter 9, verse 35, he says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves, be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat when he comes and serve them. And as he should come in the second watch, or and if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them, so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. Same idea of watchfulness. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give him their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. There's that watchfulness again. And at an hour when he is not aware. And will cut him into and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And the parable goes on to outline the dis discipline the servants of this master would then receive. Again, the sin that is warned of in this passage is simply a lack of watchfulness. In Mark 13, you have sort of a parallel passage. Jesus is having a similar conversation with the disciples. 
In Mark 13, verse 32, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take ye, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Doorkeepers watching. This should bring Psalm 84 to your mind, right? 84.10, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, right? And the doorkeeper just stands there and watches. <laughs> watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, in the mid at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. One more parable, just in case this isn't hammered home quite yet. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. All are commanded to wait for the bridegroom, but only five watch with trimmed lamps. The bridegroom, com bridegroom comes, the five unprepared foolish virgins go to buy oil, but the door of the feast is shut. And Matthew 25, 11 reads, Afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then the next verse begins, Watch, therefore. It's summed up for you. You don't have to guess at what it means. What's the point? He explains it for you right there. So, so watch. Mark 13, 33, we read, Watch and pray. In Luke chapter 9, verse 37, it says, Blessed are those servants whom their master, when he comes, will find watching. Luke chapter 9, verse 40, Therefore you also be ready. Luke 9, 61, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore. Luke 17, 32, Remember Lot's wife, who didn't watch. And I'll add one more verse, the one that I read at the beginning, 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And then there's the question of Luke 18, verse 8, which cannot be easily discarded. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Is there anyone willing to watch? We must have our eyes set on Christ. The words of Jesus are clear. We must be those who are watching for him. Watching for his coming. Now then the, the natural question is, well, how do we do this? And a temptation among many is like, well, you got to keep watching what Russia and Iran are doing because that's like, okay, that's not what he says in this passage. How do you watch for his coming? How do you watch for Christ? Well, the parable of the ten virgins gives us a clue. We trim our lamps. The parable of the master away on a long journey gives us another. The faithful servants tended to their master's house and served the other servants. That's how the watchful are described. And our text in Luke 18 gives us the very clear answer, without any veil of parable, men ought always to pray. That's how you watch. That's it. Jesus says watch. And then he anticipates the questions we have. How? And he anticipates this and then answers the question by giving a teaching about praying always. And with a warning, remember the one that's not watchful, the salty lady. And then he anticipates the question, how do we turn from the, the world? How do we not be like Lot's wife who looked back? How do we do that? How do we fight against the tendency to look longingly at the world that is under judgment? The answer is pray always. Pray and fast. John Wesley said that prayer, with prayer we grasp for the next world <laughs> With fasting, we let go of this one. These are two hands. 
A lot of this watchfulness is nothing less than a reordering of loves, a shifting of priorities towards heaven, the heavenly. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, uh, sorry, 4, verse 8, that there's a crown of righteousness for all those who love Christ's appearing. You look at what you love. You're going to fix your eyes on what you love. We know that we are to be watchful. How do we cultivate this love of his coming? How do we grow in our, our loving watchfulness? Pray always. There are disciplines of the heart that shape your heart uh, according to, the, to Christ's heart. Men always ought to pray. This echoes one of the most concise commands in Scripture, of course, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. Which we say, that's hard. And then you go back to the Gospels and Jesus says, well, can you do it in an hour? And we're like, nope, still too hard. <laughs> how, how far do we have to reduce it? You know, we, we quickly throw out 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 as an exaggeration. It's like, well, without ceasing, that's forever. That's all the time. But as quickly as we forget Jesus' words that the one who looks back isn't worthy of the kingdom, you know, we, we toss this verse out, we toss that. We, we can't ignore these things. When Jesus uses strong words, it's not our job to soften them and make them all, color them with pastels, right? We don't dodge the punch. We don't remove the teeth from these passages. We see that Jesus says, watch and pray. And our, our response needs to be, okay, I'll do it. Charles Spurgeon uh, can use some hard words sometimes. He says uh, this, and keep in mind, if this fits you, if this like hits home, just remember, this is Charles Spurgeon that's saying this about you, not your own kind and loving pastor. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon says about no one here, a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a decaying bone or a rotting tooth. Now look at the passage again in 18, Luke 18. He spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray, and not lose heart. Many of the parables don't give the interpretation right there in the front, right? It kind of ruins the point of a parable. This one does. And the application of this passage should only be this. We must pray always and not lose heart. That was Christ's intention in sharing this story. That's it. Praying always is something we ought to do. Uh, this, comparing this passage with uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where we read, pray without ceasing. It's, it's imperative. It's something we must do. We must pray. Prayer is needed. And the rest of the parable of the unjust judge and the widow, it, it tells us how to pray. I'm going to read it again. Starting in verse 2, Luke 18. There was a certain in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. The key word in verse 5, uh, continual, says, lest by her continual coming she weary me. We're the prayers. We're supposed to be compared with this widow, the poor and the needy, who prays continually. And if she can get what she wants, 
from an unjust judge that doesn't care about her at all. Jesus says, if you pray the same way, continually, how much more your Father in heaven who loves you and has your best interest at heart, how much his, his response is going to be so much generous and so much quicker than this evil judge that you can just annoy into doing your will. Prayer isn't like annoying God to doing your will. That's not the point. That's never the point. But he's saying, if you can pray continually and even get that judge, that unjust judge, to hear you and give you, how much more praying to your Father who loves you? But she prays continually. And Jesus says that his own elect, in verse 7, cry out day and night to him. This is how our prayers, the prayers of the church, are described. Is this how you pray? Day and night, night and day, the incense of the altar in Revelation rising to God. Those are the prayers of the saints. Continue. The fire on the altar would never go out. Is that how we pray? Continually. Wouldn't it be cool if you could see a chart of like everyone in our church of just like when they're praying to see if like just our church has prayer going like all the time? I think we're on the same time zone, so we probably sleep at mostly the same time. There's like a lull there. But then if you saw, like, a time, you're like, oh, no one's praying. Like, you don't want to, like, pick that up and be like, okay, like, let's keep, keep this chain unbroken. Let's keep praying. Ceaseless prayer. Be a church of praying people. I said at the beginning that we look in two directions. We're watchful in our gaze towards Christ's return, and we're introspective, examining ourselves. These are joined. These are not two completely separate things. This is part of being watchful, and it's part of a, a ceaseless watchfulness. Part of looking into the future, into next year making plans, even being even part of being watchful, includes this discipline of looking back and saying, oops, and saying, never again. And part of it, it involves looking inward at yourself, at your habits, at your sins, at your strengths. You know, looking at a blank page and saying, oh, what are the possibilities? Like, that's, that's good. It's not quite as useful, though, as looking back at, and seeing how you filled your time in the year past. Part of a Christian's life is self-examination. Um, it's seeing if you're the kind of servant that is abusing the other servants or serving the other servants. If you're the kind of uh, expert expector that has lamps trimmed, ready to go. Here we are. We're, we're good to go. I live like I'm ready for Christ. Or not. And you're just kind of waiting for that last minute, hoping the store is still open for the oil. Um, part of the Christian's life is examination. Uh, it seemed like Socrates and Paul agreed on this. And Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And then they killed him. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, I hope he was right. Uh, so but Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5. The word is a mirror. And as we've heard the words of Jesus, watch, pray, be praying, be watchful, ceaselessly, without ceasing. For some of us, those verses sting. Like, I don't need to jump to the application and be like, how does this apply to my life? Like, it applies immediately by showing us that we're not people that pray ceaselessly. For some of us, these verses sting right away because we know that we're just not like that. We're not doing the things we're supposed to do, setting aside time for the things that are most important. Jesus routinely went out to pray before the sun was up. Um, Jesus could not be found by those wanting his time because he was spending it in prayer. The apostles of the early church declared their priorities in Acts 6, verse 4. We will give ourselves continually, there's that word again, to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
And they actually set that apart from all the needs in the body of the church. There were people that were hungry. You're like, well, you got to go feed them. And they're like, no, we're going to pray and read our Bibles. And you're like, that's terrible. <laughs> but they delegated, effectively, and got deacons set up. And churches have had deacons ever since, which is nice. Okay, But I, I told you this before. This is a forgotten obligation that Christians have, to be regularly found missing, to be unavailable because of prayer. Now, in Christian ministry, a great deal of time is spent highlighting the value of being available. And, of course, we see that in Jesus' life, too, to an extreme. He was uh, available to lepers and to children and to sinners and to people who he shouldn't have been available to. He had meetings at night, Nicodemus. He, he was very available, okay? He wasn't just sitting in the green room, green room before the show and not allowed to, like, talk to all the, the common people, right? Jesus was available, but he was also often found missing, unavailable, not to be found many, many times because he was praying. Now, I'm confessing I need more of this, always, and I'm preaching this to you, too. So do you. When's the last time you canceled something because it ran into your appointment to pray? You know, when's the last time you didn't pick up the phone because you were praying? You're like, I can't take this. No, you put Jesus on hold because he's got more time, right? Now, I don't believe I'm the only one who, having examined the way my minutes are spent in my day, I, I would see that this dedication to ceaseless prayer that Jesus had, that the apostles had, it's something that is foreign to my schedule. If this is where we find ourselves, and the only course of action is a quick repentance. We turn from our prayerlessness. So tomorrow night we begin a week of prayer meetings to watch, to pray. I don't expect all of you to come every night, though I know a small number of you will. Thank you. I would like you to come to at least one. Jesus asked Peter, Can you not watch with me one hour? And then Peter's behavior answered the question with a resounding, no, I'm sleepy. <laughs> I fear that the behavior of the church may resemble Peter's night of failure far more than the dedication to prayer we read of in Acts. We have to be watchful. We need to look for Christ's return by looking to ourselves and seeing if we are serving the body. As I look at myself, as I look at my time, I see that prayer is what is needed. Uh, because in my life, prayer is still more neglected than it ought to be. And what I want to do to fix that, of course, is to read books on prayer and make a checklist that says pray. But that's not actually the solution, is it? What I, what I actually need to do, and I, I would suggest what you need to do as well, is just show up to the prayer meetings and then pray. Now, if that's not you and your prayer life is vibrant and consistent, then come and pray for the rest of us because we need you. We need you to pray for us. Uh, you have a gift that has been given not just for yourself, but for the body. Uh, don't, don't keep it in your prayer closet at home. Come pray for your church. Now, I often mention Acts 2.42 in many sermons of a variety of kinds. It's the verse that gives us those four things, right? The four things the church must be dedicated to. Um, when you examine yourself, so we look to Christ and look to ourselves, examine yourself according to these standards, the watchfulness, the prayers, but the things the early church continued steadfastly in. In Acts 2.42, it says the church continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, that's Scripture. Maybe your prayer life is fine, way better than mine, but your reading habits aren't. Um, dusty Bibles aren't, aren't good to have, okay? 
blow up the dust, open pages, read it. Uh, please come on New Year's Eve. Uh, the, it's the last night of the year, and we'll read through an entire book of the Bible together. It's a great way to finish and start. And that kind of reading can whet the appetite for more scripture, for next year's Bible reading plan, whatever you've got in mind. The early church continued in fellowship, perhaps. This is more your weak point. Uh, listen, you belong to the church. You're part of the church. The way watchfulness was described in the parable of the master going on the journey was a servant who is serving other servants. The one who's not watchful was the one abusing other servants. Neglect is a kind of abuse. If you're not serving the church, if you're not with your body serving them, neglect is a kind of abuse. You are surrounded at this moment by family. Whatever's stopping you from having true friendships in the church, true fellowship, you can repent of that. Uh, you can repent of your isolation, your busyness, your laziness, whatever it may be. Don't believe the lie that you're don't believe the lie that no one is with you. Pursue meaningful relationships among the saints. You know how to do that? You know where a great place to form those meaningful relationships with saints are? It's when those saints are praying. Maybe for you. Hey, guess where that can happen? At a prayer meeting. We have five of them this week. I'd love to see some of you there. The early church continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. This was probably communion, uh, but it would have also included simple hospitality. That's what we read in Acts 2. This bowl. Rather, not simple hospitality, holy hospitality. Uh, dedicate yourself to both. Share a meal with someone, go out to eat with someone, cook for someone, yes, this is back to the fellowship part, but then elevate that meal by serving communion to someone or inviting someone to communion. Devote yourself to the Lord's Supper. We're going to be doing this as a church next year a whole lot when we get into 1 Corinthians. We'll start 1 Corinthians next Sunday. And of course there's a, uh, a, a good section that we read every month on the Lord's Supper and we're going to spend some time there dedicating ourselves as a church to communion. We'll also be having communion on New Year's Eve as the last thing that we do this year and the first thing we do next year. So, come on Friday to that. In Acts 2.42, this description of the early church, the last thing the early church continued steadfastly, continually in, is prayer. And prayer is needed. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can all confess that prayer is neglected. When Jesus asked the question, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? The answer is a resounding yes. By his grace, he will find faith on the earth. The purpose of this parable was to teach men that teach that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And see, there are praying people. What we need to do is make a way for those praying people to find each other so that they can pray together. But to discard the question, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth, without personal self-examination would be a mistake. Will he find faith with us? Will he find faith with you to continually develop these habits? Let us repent, continually repent, of what we need to do and may God have grace on us to make us praying watchful saints and a praying watchful church. Father, by your spirit, these things can be. Uh, you can make us, you are fashioning us into the image of your son. You, Jesus, are at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. You are our mediator. And as you are praying for us, we pray that that the fruit of those prayers would be our 
prayerlessness being put away. Make us watchful. Make us into a praying church, praying saints. We bless you and we thank you for the good things you have in store for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand.